Hello, this is episode 16 of Artist Impressions. I'm joined by award-winning director, playwright and drag king, Emily Aboud. Emily was a recipient of the Evening Standard Future Theatre Award in 2021. She is an associate artist at the Bush Theatre and is the artistic director of Lagahoo Productions, which is a new diorama emerging company. Her acclaimed show, Splintered, of a Baton Cabaret piece, which she describes as a blend of carnival, rebellion, feminism and queerness, has been performed at numerous festivals, including Vaults Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe, and most recently at Soho Theatre, where it will return between the 18th and 29th of April this year. Emily is currently in rehearsals for a work in progress project called Insurrection at the Royal Opera House. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Um, yeah, I feel like I should remove Associate Artist at the Bush because that was in 2018, but they've not told me to, that it's no longer happening. So keep that in the podcast. If you're listening, Lynette, I'm sorry. I love you so much. Um, but yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited. It's nice to hear it all uh, read out loud, which is a bit frightening. But yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. How, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Um, I thought I'd start the interview by asking, um, can you describe a typical Emily rehearsal room? What's the atmosphere? What's like a day in the rehearsal room with Emily like? Do you have favourite games? What's your process? Um, yes. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to word this properly because I'm realising that it's not the norm because I thought that how I run rehearsals is very like typical, but... It isn't uh, in the rooms that I've assisted and like talking to peers, but um, I'm very particular about uh, having a check in in the morning. So that's just like asking everyone how they are. Usually that, that is just something as simple as if you were a thing in this room to describe how you feel right now, what would it be and why? Or if you were a sound or a color and like I kind of have to play it by ear, but I just think it's really important. For the, for the company to know that I, I care about how they're feeling and they should hear how I'm feeling and, like, we can just talk about how... Like, talk about not work things, I guess, which is nice. And then um, I'm also very particular about doing um, at least two warm-ups because one needs to warm up the body and another one needs to warm up the mind. So, big fan of, like... Depending on the show, like, if it's, like, quite an athletic show, I might just, like, assign everyone a day of the week where they have to do, like a 10 minute aerobic like lead 10 minutes of aerobics or some kind of like hit stuff or just do a dance for five minutes so I put on some carnival music and we have to like dance to it um and then yeah a mind warm-up game which you can there's there's thousands you can pick your fave currently my favorite is called um Mr Whiskers um which is a tongue twister game there's also can't dance like me which is kind of like my signature game but yeah, body, then mind. Um, and sort of, yeah, I, I, I really think that play is the most important thing in a rehearsal room. So like depending on which week we're in is a different, you know, process for each sort of week or like not necessarily week, but like where we are um, in, in, in the process as a whole. So, you know, like I, I unfortunately think table work is really important. I think it's really boring, but I think it's very important. So we will do table work, but that means that we are all, we've all like discussed the play as a company and have like shared understandings of what different things are. But um, when it comes to like, you know, quote unquote blocking, I, 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 I tend not to do it until the very end um, because I want to keep the thing playful. I want to see like, right, what have you discovered? What is it, you know? because things things just emerge like even just like physical restraints emerge like uh I was doing a show at Lambda uh in January and uh it's about women in the army there's three women and one man in this squad and bless him the dude is like 
uh, 6'3". So just physically, that meant that I had to be like, all right, cool, you need to start the scene, sat down, because you're going to tower over everyone, and that is a different status for starting the scene. But, um, yeah, I suppose just sort of keeping it playful, and I try not to um, stop, start often. I think a lot of, you know, interesting character relationships are found when you just run the damn thing. Just run the damn thing. How did that feel? Right. What felt weird? It felt good when you were there at this point. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's go back. Um, I will stop start it eventually, um, but I, I think it's it's more about once once the actors understand their characters in relationship to other characters, is when the magic is happening. I think, and then of course tech is the greatest. I, this is a very long winded answer to what a typical day is, but it depends. Laura, sorry. Um, no, that's great. Um, so now we know what it's like to be in rehearsals with Emily. We'll get back to your um, creative process a bit later. Um, but I want to go back and start at the beginning with young Emily. How did you get into theatre? You grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. Were you involved in student theatre or um, youth theatre? Um, yeah. How did you get into it? Yeah, so, yes, I grew up in Trinidad. I'm born there. My parents are born there. I'm of mixed heritage. It's it, it's how it is sometimes. Um yeah, I don't know how deep to get with this because I have always, like, always wanted to act or perform or be involved in the arts for as long as I remember. Um, and I'm wary of saying that because I feel like, I feel like the type of kid who wants to be an actor when they're super young is the type of kid who had really rich parents, which I did, which I do. Um, well, not really rich comparatively, but yes. Um, and you know, it's like kind of full of themselves and the center of attention all the time. And I do not like children like that. And I do not like, um, I, I think that's a problem in the industry is that it takes a certain type of person to, to, to have the confidence to do it. Um, but to get really deep, um, I'm autistic and I have always wanted to perform and, or, or make work, but, you know, I was super shy, super, um, I wouldn't, shy is not even the right word. It's like I couldn't perceive people or like miss their lack of their, like, miss a lack of people's presence around me. So, yeah, I always wanted to, to, to do stuff, but it's not like I was telling anyone that. And I saw a show of a children's theatre company called Lilliput Theatre in uh, Trinidad, which is the only, the only youth theatre company I can I, I, that I know of in the whole fucking country. Um, and it's run by Noble Douglas and Wendell Man Warren, who are without a doubt the, the people who are most responsible for, I think, who are one of the most important people when it comes to um, like uh, blossoming young artists. Like the, the work that the Lilliput Theatre does is obscene. Um, so much so, in fact, that the current associate director of the Lyric Hammersmith was a Lilliputian just like me. Like it's like, it is fucking crazy. Anyway, um, so yeah, I just saw a show of this because my auntie was the costume designer for it. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I need to do this. I need to do this. And I joined like typical autistic kid, um, really shy, did not like being touched, did not like talking about things that weren't, you know, tennis or, you know, Harry Potter, which I do not like anymore, by the way, fuck that. But um, yeah, so I did, I, I did a lot of Lilliput Theatre. It fully got me out of my shell. And I think what's really fantastic about it as well is it's community-led theatre. Like Wendell would lead us through um, devising processes. And all we really had was the title of the, the show because it was the same title of the carnival band that year. So 
yeah, we'd had a show called SS Uprising and we all were like, oh, let's do Trini Moby Dick. So we just devised and made a Trini Moby Dick. And what's also just really important as well, it's, it's just, it was such an accessible um, company. Like if you wanted to join, money was no object. And, you know, Trinidad is an incredibly multicultural place. So um, I just feel like they're doing like the greatest work you can do. Like the whole point of theatre is to get people from different backgrounds and races and classes and be like, right, let's make art together. Let's try and understand each other. So yeah, I could talk about it forever. And that's why I loved it. Um, And I remember leaving the stage because I was playing Captain Ahab in the Moby Dick because I had given myself the lead because I was a fantastic actor back in the day. Um, and I was like, mom, I'm going to be an actor. Fuck this. I'm going to do it. And she's like, no, Ems, no, you're going to be a director. And she was unfortunately right. Um, maybe that's autism again, but I decided then and there, okay, I can do that. Let me see. So I got a scholarship from the government because Trinidad has a lot of scholarships. Well, not anymore because of COVID, but they used to have loads. And I got a science scholarship because that is, I love science. And then I went to do uh, engineering in the UK um, but I specifically chose Edinburgh uh, because I wanted to be by the Fringe because I thought the Fringe was the best. And also, unfortunately, a book series was based around there. But it's fine. We move forward with love. Um, yeah. And I just did, you know, loads of student theatre. I learned so much and did enough to convince um, Mountview to, to put me on their master's course for theatre directing, which at the time... Not even at the time, which I still think was a very, very difficult thing. Because they're so stupid. They're like, oh, you've done engineering. Like, what do you know about theatre? And to be fair, like, I didn't know who Ibsen was. Um, and I couldn't name three theatres in London because I'd nev- never been to London. So, I mean, that's that's a whole other problem about how stupid the industry can be. But, yeah, I'm trying to... Yeah, I just had a really good time at uni learning, learning so many things. And also being really jealous because... The theatre education, if you're in a posh school or a school that can afford it. Like, I didn't know what a stage manager was. When would I have known that? We were doing community theatre. I, I didn't... Yeah, I, really, really, really cool. Uh, and now I'm here and I'm doing cool stuff, I think. Let's pick up on what you were saying about theatre being so London-centric, because it, it really is. There's been, you know, a slight push towards funding more regional theatre and touring theatre um, with the sort of recent Arts Council funding changes, which, you know, have many opinions on all of those things. But yeah, um, let's pick up on that a little bit um, whilst we're here. Just, yeah, tell me a bit more of your thoughts about that. Now that you are sort of um, really involved in in London, in the London theatre scene, and you can name more than um, three London theatres, and you do know who Ibsen is. Tell me more, how has your perspective changed on that? I think there's so many opinions that I have, and they're all dependent on the scenario i think when i first moved here god like my mom was so worried about me when i first moved here because every time i went home i became like more skeletal and like definitely not happy um i've gotten better at it now but like i i think moving to london is such a shock especially i don't know being from trinidad and like having the lovely city of edinburgh as you're kind of like there's trees everywhere you can walk the water tastes good um and then coming here and it's like it's I know I keep talking about autism and I, I, I don't know why I'm doing that, but um, like the tube is a horrible, horrible place um, to be, which is why I prefer to cycle if I can, because it, yeah, I'm bitching about London. I'm not talking about theatre in London, but um, I, this, like no matter how horrible that was, I loved being here and I do love being here because I have access to all of this theatre. Should there be this much theatre? Yes, 
Should there be more elsewhere? Yes. I'm never going to say like cut down theatre. I think that's, I don't know, I think that's wrong because I think people are struggling to make work here as well and can't afford to live here and it's just a mess. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think a lot, um, something I, I do want to mention, which I think is, is really, it's kind of twofold, is yes, obviously regional venues are not getting um, enough funding. That's, I, I, I feel like I can't even talk on it because I've literally never made theatre outside of London. Yeah. And what's worse is that when I see a theatre that is doing work that I want to see, I don't go and see it, which is which is shit, right? Because I'm making somebody from Manchester or Newcastle or Bristol come see my shit. And I'm, you know, I can't be bothered to go on the train. The, you know, the Leicester curve isn't far away. Why why haven't I gone there, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the Royal Exchanges, I've been there, I love it. I want to direct there, I would die to direct there. But, oh, it's just so com- It's so complex because I think regional venues obviously deserve more. But I can't even say that um, if they programmed something that I was really gutted to miss, such example, like they did Hedvig at the Leeds Playhouse and I was dying to see that. But the train tickets were too expensive. So it's like, it's, this, this, it's so many layers of austerity screwing everybody up. Because I think it's wonderful when regional venues do amazing work, but... Uh, nobody in London can go and see it. And something else that's kind of a tangent anyway, Laura, but I think um, having been with my girlfriend for nearly four years, uh, who is from Swindon, which is the worst place in the UK, according to her, because I've actually, she's never taken me to Swindon itself. I've only been at the train station and then gone to her house. It's so bad that like after four years, she's st- like, she still won't take me to the Swindon TK Max, which is my dream, which is like my dream to go to. But yeah, um, there's something that's real important, I think, as well, about how London people think about what good theatre is. I love going to the theatre with my girlfriend because I'm in this, you know, very insular theatre people going to see other theatre people shows world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she'll see a show and she'll be like, well, I don't know why this is reviewing so well, because this is not something that my parents would be entertained by because it's so mm-hmm. it requires so much prior knowledge of theatre. So I think that's. Yeah, I, I don't even know what I'm asking. I think I think we, there needs to be more money everywhere. But I also think that London can be so London-centric in, in an intellectually superior way. Um, mm-hmm. And the train prices make everything impossible. So I, I, I'm actually... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's too complex. I'm glad that ACE is encouraging more funding out in regional areas. But I'm terrified. I'm sad that that means that London venues have to suffer because there are a lot of people here who are trying to make theatre and can't afford to do it. So I don't know. Yeah. Let's talk about Lagahoo and Splintered. Can you describe the show for people who haven't seen it? Splintered is a uh, play disguised as a cabaret. It is based on interviews that I did with queer women from Trinidad and Tobago in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, as well as a lot of personal stuff as a queer woman from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, That is fast-paced, very funny, speaks about some really sad things in very happy ways and teaches history about the origins of Caribbean carnival from the horse's mouth. And it's super funny and there's every aspect, like the cabaret thing is very important. Like it is essentially a cabaret. There are acts, there is all the characteristics of a cabaret it has, but it's just layered on top of what is essentially a story about trying to come out. You did these interviews. Did you write a script based on that or did you um, take your ideas in the interviews into a rehearsal room um, and devise the piece with a cast or probably a bit of both? Yeah, it was a long process, I can't lie. Um, so I was on the Soho Writers Lab, the Soho Theatre Writers Lab at at the time. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had to write a play with them. 
And I hadn't like done any interviews or anything, but I knew I wanted to make like a cabaret-esque play because I was really interested in exploring theatre that isn't naturalism, but that had like the excitement that I was finding in drag king club nights that I wasn't finding in theatres in London. Um, so I, I wrote the first, I wrote the opening, which was just me having a deadline and I just thought, oh, what is the campus thing? The most hilarious, uh, grotesque thing to start a show. And it's a woman taking a shot from a menstrual cup. I thought it was hilarious. I think it's funny. Like, I think it's funny if it's like around her neck. Um, and it was a complete coincidence that moon cup or menstrual cup is MC. And I was like, oh my God, this is fucking hilarious. So I just wrote the opening, which is like clearly an MC taking a shot from a moon cup, but that's like not, that wasn't rehearsed. So why is this character on stage before everyone else? And made a bit of comedy about that. And then that Christmas I went home and just started gathering interviews. And I actually, we actually booked some space uh, after I gathered those interviews uh, with, with queer Caribbean actors in London. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I, I, yeah, I kind of, kind of lost on the timeline a little bit. I didn't bring those interviews out at all, but it was more mm-hmm. um, getting these actors in and hearing you know, how, how they feel about Caribbean culture and, and queerness. And I think, I think what's really, really important to mention, and it's a lesson that I had to learn over the years of doing the show, is that a, Caribbean, a queer Caribbean person who's brought up in the Caribbean is really different, and not in, not in a bad or a good way. It's, it's, it's a different experience to um, a queer Caribbean person who grew up in Britain and has British heritage as well. Like, so I think it was really good to kind of do both because I'm obviously from, I grew up in the Caribbean. I'm, I can't marry my girlfriend and introduce her to my dead grandparents. Like that's, that, that's a whole thing. And not to say that the shame is in any way, like the queer shame or like, it's just, it's just different and not that one is better or the other. So a lot of the, like the sort of devising R&D stuff with, with British Caribbean actors or actors who had grown up here or permanently lived here, like, a bit like me, it's um, really, really interesting because I was learning from them what a British audience would respond to. Because obviously I'm Trinidadian, right? So all my references are a bit a bit different. So I think that's the thing that keeps coming up with Lagerhoof stuff is that like I'll have an idea or write a play and that is going to be stuff that I specifically like but that stuff might not translate to a British audience. So having actors in to be like, oh, I think we should try this is really good. So we did lots of devising with um, really homophobic dancehall and carnival songs and trying to find the joy of carnival and like make a commentary on how misogynistic can be. Um, and it kind of just ended up being a cabaret from both ends, from me writing the MC bit and then from the actors like delivering these hilarious little sketch bits. Um yeah, and we did it at the Fringe, and it was a version that was very hard to put on because we couldn't. I, I I was still learning what I wanted and what was possible, and the Fringe is very very difficult. And I wouldn't rush back. No, I'm lying. I would. I would. I love the place. It's like Stockholm syndrome, if that's the right thing. It's like a, it's like a abusive relationship. Me and the Fringe. Um, <laughs> but basically, every time we've done the show, I've learned something new from the audience that came, and we change it. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask how much has it evolved because it's, yeah, you've performed it in so many spaces with um, a sort of evolving cast. Um, yeah, how much has, has changed? It has changed a lot, I would say. So much so that, mm-hmm. and this is no disrespect to anyone who worked on the Fringe production. I'm really proud of that production, but I think I wouldn't recognise the show if I saw the Fringe show again because I think that's the great, great, wonderful thing about Fringe is that you, you just put everything in and see, like, right, does this work? 
th- change these bits, work on this bit. And also we didn't, um, it, it was our first show. So we had, for, anyway, I'm not going to apologize about that. It's changed a lot over the time. Right. And I'm really proud of what we made yeah. at each time. And I think the difference between um, a fringe audience and a London audience is obscene, like truly obscene. Because it didn't change that much when we did it in Vaults in 2020. I mean, I like we had a little bit more money, so we just got better costumes and we had a bit more time to like get the right chair and just add to it. It's really hard to do a cabaret that should be about excess and campness with no money. So then every time we've done it, we've got a bit more money. So that like just... <laughs> creative things aside it's gotten better because we've had more tangible money to put in it um but i think when we did it at the soho uh last year and now because that was in the upstairs space this year we're going to be in the main fucking house which is obscene and stupid and if in 2018 they're gonna be like, oh yeah in five years this is going to be the main house in soho i would be like okay sure i'll have moved back to trinidad by then and i'll be s- single and sad but instead Everything's better. But, um, yeah, I think when we when we did it again in London, in the Soho upstairs, it became a lot more of a story about trying to come out because it was actually my girlfriend who said, Emily, why are you stressing? Like, Slint, it's just about you trying to come out to your mum. And I was like, oh, my God. That's what it's about. It's about me trying to come out. And um, also, I've become a better director and a better writer, and I've been working in the industry longer, so I understand dramaturgy better. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, I don't know. If, if, if anyone's out there listening and they're worried about making work, every time you do it, you get better. And it's really uh, exciting. I want to pick up on what you're saying about audiences. And I imagine the answer to this question is sort of nuanced and kind of both. But I wonder how much when you're making work, do you think about making it for the people who will be represented, will feel like you're taking space to share their experience? And how much do you think about making it for people who will be challenged by the work and will have things to learn from it? I mean, obviously, everyone has things to learn from your work. But I wonder sort of how, how much is it for the people represented or for the people challenged? That's such a, that's a question that changes with every show. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, by and large, I think the audience completely changes everything. And a bad theatre maker doesn't consider this. Even like when they're programming, like even before rehearsals have started, I'm like, I, I mean, this is another interesting chat about the fringe is that I don't know if I would take, nowadays, I don't know if I would take, if, if Splinter had just started, I don't know if I would take it to the fringe because I don't think the audience is right for it. Um, mm-hmm. you, need, you need to think about the audiences almost in a selfish way or like a company-minded way because if you are making someone sit some in, in something that they don't want to be in or they hate, that is something that an actor is going to be able to sense and then you've made, the, or, you've made the space unsafe. Even if it's a twat, like a, you, don't, you don't care if they like the show or not, I think it's important to be careful about um, how that might affect the actors and how that just might affect the entire vibe of the room. So it's it's a complete balancing act. Obviously, oh my God, like I've definitely, there's bits in Splintered and in Boogeyman and in many of my other work where I'm kind of like, oh, I don't care if we single out one type of person in this, in this call out. Um, I think there's a way to do it that isn't going to make them feel silly and, and hurt. I, I Yeah, I think for me, and I feel like some, some theatre makers will disagree um, but theatre is, is transactional. And if, and if someone is paying me money to see my show, I feel like as an artist, I kind of, 
I have a duty to make them not feel like shit in a way that they didn't sign up for. <laughs> but that's tricky. You know, some people get super offended by something or some people like um, understand the point and be like, oh, I need to work on this. And also, fuck me, like artists, we're not God. Like why? I find like some, some theater makers want to make work to be like, how dare you? How dare you do this? Have you thought of the refugee crisis? How, how dare you eat meat or whatever? And I'm just like, like, know your fucking audience. If I am seeing your show in this venue, know that I probably vote Labour. You know, know that, like, there is there is nothing I could have done personally about Brexit. So there's, there's, there's a difference between pointing the blame at the individual or pointing the blame at the system. And I will attempt every time to point any kind of blame that I want at the uh, institution or the system as opposed to the individual. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, at all but I think I think audience awareness no, is super important and I it actually is a bit of my thing in the last year is being really angry when theatre makers just do something because it's provocative and not even remotely care about the safety of the people in the room because I can't leave the space I've paid you money to do this I would have I yeah. could have spent that money on a fucking Mackey's like I don't like anyway I think I think it's a really really difficult balance and it's never black and white I just think um yeah we have power as makers that we should respect. Definitely. Yeah, I, I always feel like I want any audience member to be glad they went, even if they learned a lot or felt challenged. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. I think different venues have different audiences and then you, you can work with that. Um, you told the stage that if theatre isn't political, it's conservative. Tell me more about that. I think we, uh, unfortunately, more and more, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but there are some characteristics of fascism now turning up in the uk mm -hmm. which is very uh scary um but i mean even fucking in 2003 in tony blair's labor i would still say that art needs to be a uh, political unless it's conservative because it's i f for me art is a really important um way that humans can connect to each other that humans oh. can um share communities can um, understand different perspectives and come to understandings with each other. Um, and I think the conservative mindset is the opposite of that. So that's, that. It's, it really just depends on what people's definition of conservative, left-wing, mm -hmm. liberal, all of it is. But I'm just like, currently, my definition of being politically conservative is more about the individual, more about saving money for yourself, more about... Um, yeah, and then art is the opposite. Art is more about the community and more about trying to spread love <laughs> in a really boring way. But I, I don't know. I think it's... I like that sentence because it kind of is intentionally vague because de it depends on what your definitions are. And I think I think some people will say political is a bad word and I think political is a good word um, because everything's political. Ev literally everything is political. Yeah. Um, let's talk about boogeyman because that's a more recent production that you've been working on and I, I know uh you took it to the edinburgh fringe it's about the haitian revolution i haven't seen it so my questions are a bit broader tell me about it um i'm really proud of it in the okay. same way i was very proud of splintered in 2019 in that like okay. i think taking a show to fringe is very very hard and there were corners that that i had to cut to get the thing on um, the same corners that you have to just cut anyway. Uh -huh. But it is about 
that's, I'm starting it on a negative. I'm very, very proud of it. But basically, all this to say, what I'm going to describe, it, it, it's going to come back. And it's going to come back and it's going to be different. And we've learned mm-hmm. so much from it. So I'm really, really proud of it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so Boogeyman is a very, very challenging um, idea because it kind of is a horror about the Haitian revolution and the lasting effects of colonialism and mm-hmm. how like, how spooky, how spooky it is that, how, how, how spooky the idea of the dead coming back is and how spooky mm-hmm. it is it specifically to colonizers. Because if, if I was an enslaved person in Haiti and someone came up to me like, oh my God, the dead are coming back, they're coming back, they're wreaking havoc, they're not coming. They're not coming for other enslaved people. You know, they're going to come for those who have stolen. So th- this this whole idea, this this fear of the undead and ghosts and fucking Dracula and things that can't die is so obviously like a white fear, a uh, Western fear. So that was kind of like the core of it was me being like, I want to I want to talk about this fear. I want to talk about the Haitian Revolution and how nobody knows about it, which is it is it is insane because we learn this in school. We do this for years in school. This was the, this was a, a revolt of enslaved people that lasted um, 13 years um, that created the first black Republic. Like it's insane. 13 and a half years. So yeah, it was, it was kind of like trying to bring those two things together. And what's really interesting is that when we first started R and Ding it, I was going to do a spooky retelling of the Haitian revolution. And then I started writing little bits about what it feels to um, live in this city and then as we started rehearsing for French, I started writing a bit more naturalism bits. And I was like, oh, man, this is really creepy, like what it feels like to live here in London at this time, knowing, knowing the history that I know. And then now, I, like at the Fringe, we just learned like, it's so hard. It's so hard to condense the Haitian Revolution into an hour, but also have <laughs> characters that people care about. I just, I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. But I think it's, 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 it's going to take a while until, it, until it's perfect. But I'm really, really excited for it because it's it should yeah. it's it's like a dual time horror that um mm-hmm. teaches and informs and spooks you out well i'm looking forward to seeing it when it next appears it, it will come back and i'm excited for that i want to move on and talk about other aspects of your work you also teach and lead workshops and direct acting students um what has teaching taught you i don't know if you want to hear this this is really depressing what i'm gonna say it's all right if it's the truth (laughs) what irks me every time i teach at a drama school or um like do a workshop is how much stupid information i have to have in my head to to work in this industry like to know everyone who's the artistic director who's the associate director what playwrights do they like what kind what what building is this who's leaving who's doing this um where where is good for to get grants like all of this sort of stuff um and i think that's you know that's kind of part of the job that's fine but i think the the sad thing that i often find when i am teaching at drama schools um is that the students who have grown up in london know it and have that knowledge easily accessible and it's not frightening yeah. or scary um and we're I, and, the, you know, this is this is rich and poor people like just growing up being in London is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you you know, or being in London with an interest or the money to afford to go to the theatre. That's fair. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, class is complex and nuanced. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really, really love directing at drama schools because I think um, the students are so lovely and they work so hard and it, you really sort of get almost laboratory level joy. It's just like, cause they, they're so happy to be there. And like, I'm obviously very happy to be there and there's no, there is a lot of pressure, more pressure than in the professional world, but I don't know, it, it, everyone's there on time, including me. And we're discovering a play together, a play that's actually already been put on and there's less pressure oh. to be like, oh, we need to cut this or all oh, this isn't working. Um, and in many cases, it's like a professional production for them. I don't know, I just, I, I fucking love teaching in drama schools because it's, it feels like the most playful thing because there's, there's no financial pressure to succeed. There's only what can we discover in this room. But I think oh. that the thing that really always always saddens me is hearing myself talk to somebody who isn't from London or um, has just moved here or has never had the money to to access theatre and just hearing myself talk and looking at their face be confused always makes me feel like what the like what the hell like why why is this industry so insular this is this is and that would have been my face when I first moved here so I I mean I, I find it it's kind of like mm-hmm. bittersweet because I'm like, oh God, I was just like you and like, you can learn this, but it's it's crazy that I know this. Like why, why, when I go back to Trinidad, nobody knows a damn, like who cares? Who, who cares who Rupert Gould is? Oh. Who cares what the Dorfman is? Who cares? But anyway, I care because I love it. But I just think it's, yeah. it's crazy. But it, it, it doesn't have to be a marker of how interested or um talented or you know invested in theater you are as to how many artistic directors you can bingo sheet off you know like definitely um how similar or different is your approach to an existing script either one that's been performed before or 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 a new, new writing compared to something that you've written or devised yourself i actually really love um revivals uh as a as a director i think the work that Lagahu does, I'm very proud of and I love doing it. Um, mm-hmm. But it was very much like, oh, this is a story that only I can tell. And I think it'll be really interesting and fun and like a tangibly good mm-hmm. thing to put into the world. And that flexes my theatre maker muscles, which is great. But as a director, and I fucking, I fucking love directing. Let me tell you, like I, I, you can tell when I'm directing something like a revival because I won't shut up on Twitter. I'm like, oh, man, isn't it amazing? And blah, 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 blah. Um, whereas theatre making, I'm just like not on socials because I'm like so stressed because there's so much pressure to be like, right, what does the symbol mean? What colours can we use? How can we fucking afford to afford the actors? Uh, we need to rewrite the scene. There's so much pressure with theatre making, especially devising. It's really, really hard. But like, I've, I love directing revivals. I would like to direct more revivals because... And I don't mean revivals in like the Tennessee Williams way or the Ibsen way, which I would also love to do, but even just like new writing that's been done before and I can read the script and like all of the kinks have been worked out, um, what the writer wants. And then it's just really nice to come to rehearsals with the script there and I can fuck around with it if I want, but I don't have to. And I think, I think the difference is, and especially this is really very much my process is I'm really visual and I don't really care that much about text. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, text is obviously important, but I think I think design and moments and physicality can do more than me telling you I'm sad. You, you tell me you're sad, mm-hmm. sure. You sing a song to yourself in your bedroom, I know you're sad and I am affected. Um, so I think the really wonderful thing about directing a revival 
or even like working with a new writer from the start, I get to talk about my moments and I keep talking about moments. I've wrote, like, like maybe it's the whole thing made of paper and then we watch it collapse. Like just, I really like talking visually about where are the things that outside of the characters, how can we do this theatrically and show that the world is changing or um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I Just, just visually. I really like leading sort of uh, visually first and being like, okay, cool. Um, this is the climax of the play, right? The climax dramaturgically is when this fight happens. Um, in my most recent production at Lambda, the, the climax is this fight. Now, it's a play about war. Uh, I don't like war particularly, but um, we felt that uh, keeping as period accurate outfits as we could, it's like sticking to naturalism, was going to help the students get into character. So like that was guaranteed. And I knew that the climax was the, the fight was this climax. So how am I going to make this climax bigger than the rest of the play so that the audience knows that this is the thing that they need to focus on? And um, that was really exciting because I was like, right, well, let's see how abstract we can go. Like, can we design this? Like, can we bring the punching bag down? Can we get blood? Like, what? Like, I, I think directing revivals is really exciting because there's not as many moving parts. <laughs> so I can be like, this is the moment that I want and I'm going to have it. As opposed to devising and new writing and theatre making it's like I kind of really want this moment but that might change because we're changing the script as we go on we're making things and we're figuring it out so it's it's kind of it's kind of give and take sometimes you get some magic which is obviously I'm very proud of Splinter I think Splinter is amazing um and sometimes you sometimes it's very stressful but you kind of yeah I love the job I fucking love the job Laura what do you really want to revive if anyone uh any artistic directors listening what do you want to do I really want to do The Seagull. I think <laughs> it's brilliant. I think um, I, I'm really interested in doing uh, Chekhov non-naturalistically uh, and seeing what's funny. I've not thought about anything more than I just think The Seagull is fucking funny and brilliant. And like, what what's the most playful way we can, we can do The Seagull? I'm very interested in. Um, unfortunately, all of my favourite plays have recently been revived. So I'm really sad because I would have loved to do Equus. I would have loved to do The Pillow Man, which I did at uni. I did Equus, like my favorites, Spring Awakening, one of my favorites, just done. Cabaret, uh, like it's just, it's it's very annoying. I'd love to do Sweeney Todd. I would fucking die to do Sweeney Todd. Um, and that's not been done since 2012, so there's hope. Um, you're also a performer yourself. You're an award-winning drag king, Trinidad and Tuguay, though. You referred to it earlier, but how does um, performing inform your practice as a theatre maker and director? Tell you what, man, I'm doing less and less drag um, because it's not enough money um, for the amount of fun that it is. It is really fun, don't get me wrong. Um, but I am so glad that I have like this this actual life experience when it comes to directing because it has taught me so much about how I get into character um, and what helps me. So I think, you know, there's lots of, you know, you go to drama schools and it's all like, oh, what animal is your character and what texture is your character? And like, let's like be the color blue for an hour. And look, if that works for you, congrats. We'll hire a movement director. We can, we can do that. But for me... Um, just just doing drag and knowing that he's like a character that's very close to my heart and like basically a version of me. And I kind of think that all, you kind of, every actor needs to find their version of each character, what feels good in their body or just, it's not, it's never going to work. 
Um, but what's what's really good about doing <laughs> about doing drag is that it is an art form that requires that you are aware of the audience and you're in control of the audience and it doesn't work if you're afraid of the audience it only works if they're afraid of you or like aware of the power that you have on stage um mm -hmm. i think that informs so much of my work as well because obviously splintered and boogeyman have a lot of direct audience address but even in naturalism if an actor is like you know in the round or sees the front row and they and they panic that's 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 gonna mess up the vibe. So I think I think having having, you know, that drag experience helps me lead exercises with actors to be like, right, this is this is what we need to do. So I do lots of things, um, namely viewpoints, which is a method by Anne Bogart, which I will die for, and um, mm -hmm. mostly gestures. I think, um, and that's kind of a recent discovery in the last three years is how I think gestures help somebody get into character more than I mean I think what gets someone into character is what they want and their relationships with the other people but in terms of like body language um how the character sits and stands I'd rather I'd rather go from a gestures led thing um and I would do that until like week three or four because like let's see how how the character's relationship feels like let's run scenes with other actors other actors are gonna the joke is is that you could come in and have nailed your character's body language but you might do a scene with another actor and then that makes your thing invalid. So I'm really about finding it in the room as we go. And I think gestures are a really good uh, way to do that. And that is how I get into character as Trinidad, which is just like to thrust and like I have a couple like moves. And like just doing that is enough to like sort of, you know, dot to dot me to this. All oh, right. Well, he sat like this then because he wants to rub his chin. Um, so yeah, I really, I think doing drag has super duper helped how I lead uh, characterization exercises, for sure. Um, and finally, I want to ask what you are up to at the Royal Opera House. I know you're working on a, a work in progress piece called Insurrection um, that's going to be on between the 21st and 25th of March, um, scheduled to coincide with the International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade. You're, are you the writer on this? I am. Which is hilarious. Um, so you're not directing. That must be very different. It is. Um, I miss it. I miss directing. But I don't miss writing and directing. So I'm happy to be uh -huh. one or the other. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing it. Is there a question? The question is, yeah, just tell me about the piece. So um, it's because we've, we've just finished like week one and my brain is like very much exploded by it. Basically, there's an opera singer called Peter Brathwaite. He, he's Bajan heritage. His mum moved here during the Windrush, I think. And he grew up in Manchester, he discovered opera, he's now this big opera singer. And like over the last sort of 10 to 20 years, he has been like obsessed with finding out um, his family tree and his heritage. And of course, I mean, I, don't, I'm, I say of course, as if this is taught in British schools, but nobody kept many records of the black people that they were trafficking into the Caribbean and globally. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is genuinely decades long research because it is that hard to get a name or understand mm -hmm. anything that isn't white history in Barbados. Um, so he's been working on this mm -hmm. for year, this show with, for years with a director called Ellen McDougall, who is a friend of mine and a brilliant, brilliant director. And I think they did a couple R and D, I think they did a, an R and D last year and they realized at the end 
because Peter had written lots of little bits, they realised we need to get a writer in. And this is why I thought it was a joke, because it's, it's, it's silly that I just get an email from the Royal Opera House being like, it's not even like an audition. They're like, hey, um, Ellen's given me your email. We'd love you to, to write an opera that we're going to be um, making in March next year. Um, let me know. And to be honest, I kind of left that for two days because I just, I'd never heard of this name. I'd never heard of this producer. It had a legit opera address, but I was kind of like, this has got to be a mistake. Like, there's no fucking way. And then I did reply and they were like, I was like, yeah, maybe we should have a meeting. Like, no, 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 we like, we, we want you. So this isn't like an interview. Like, if, if you're keen, let's do it. Maybe you should have a phone call with Ellen. And uh, yeah, that's literally it. So for the last couple of months, I've been like, meeting with Peter, reading his like 100 page long diaries about his family tree. And let me tell you, it's very, it's actually really, it's really hard work. Um, because I'm technically writing this thing for him to see as himself. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of the biggest challenges I've ever had. And I wouldn't ever call myself a writer. I'd call myself a director who writes in the things she wants to direct. So being on the writer on this is really exciting but also like not the typical writing thing for a playwright because the playwright isn't writing characters and worlds and but I am literally like hey Peter would you say this sentence or should I change it so yes we're writing an opera um and it's gotten to we're in rehearsals now we've got an arranger we've got a band we're in the opera house studio space which is the Lindbury which is, of course, bigger than Trinidad's National Theatre, but that's a small thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting. I think I'm, I'm really excited by it because I've always really wanted to get into opera and I love musicals. And those two are separate things, but like, it's really exciting to like, learn this art form that um, is music-led, um, which a musical isn't. A musical is dialogue-led with, with songs, but, like, uh, opera is music-led, and I fucking... I love music. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much I can talk about that, that I'm learning, and it's... It's, like, the thing I wrote... Oh, I must have wrote about 40 pages of dialogue, because it's meant to be... Mon- I was told that it was meant to be a monologue, and, like, pages and pages, and I'm proud of it, and it's, it's well-written stuff, and I'm not precious, so it is fine... But there was a moment yesterday, and I was like, guys, this whole this whole page, this could, you know, could we, th- surely this can be one long sustained note on a flute, and that's what it is. And they're like, yeah, and I was like, great, cut that page. And it's just, it's very much like, we've got the words for the emotions, and now we need the sounds for the emotions to try and cut out the words. So it's, it's, um, it's hard, but it's exciting, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited because it's meant it's going to be a three. It, the goal is like a giant opera house show, right? Three full hours, cast of 50, orchestra, X, Y, Z. But instead, we've been given an hour, three cast members, four musicians and an hour. So we'll uh, we'll see. We'll see how that works. But yeah, we're working on it. It's going to be sick. I feel like I could ask you hundreds more questions. I usually end interviews firstly by asking if you have any recommendations for listeners of like stuff to see that's on at the moment. And I also tend to end by asking if there's anything else you wish I'd asked you, anything um, you feel like we haven't covered that um, you wanted to mention. I think making work as a director is very hard 
if you don't know people in buildings. That's all I think. Mm-hmm. I think I'm learning yeah. that uh, how how connection driven. Uh, I've always known it, but it just seems worse if you're not a building director. They just don't know who you are or don't know your skills. So yeah, I mean, this is just something else I'm I'm wanting to bitch about. I, I I think there's there's two ways to be a director, and one is to make your own work, and the other way is to assist in buildings. And unfortunately, the assisting in buildings way is is more boring. There's less on your website, but you you get a big show on quicker. But we move, uh-huh. we move. Um, to uh-huh. recommend, I don't know. You, you missed Paradise Now at the Bush. That was wonderful. Seen Graceland um at the court this week i'm looking forward to that oh i'm really excited to see after the act at new diorama the musical about um mm-hmm. section 28 that's going to be sick mm-hmm. uh i don't know what else mm-hmm. what are you seeing that's good um i saw standing at the sky's edge the other day and um i really enjoyed it i was very moved it's very beautiful what is on sleepovers at the bush meant to be good not seen it um booty candies meant to be good at the gate not seen it it's hard. It's hard to see things. Yeah, guys, see Sleepover at the Bush Theatre. See Booty Candy at the Gate. See Romeo and Julie, maybe. I like Rachel, the director. She's very, I think she's good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily. You're welcome. Um,